welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate industry and related industries. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market, but from leaders and, and others in the industry, so beyond the data. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand. We analyze all that data and all the changes in that data and make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. So you can visit altosresearch.com for more details on how we do that data. But without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. Connor Sen is a Bloomberg opinion columnist who writes about financial markets, the economy, housing, cities, and demographics. He's also the founder of Peachtree Creek Investments and has more than a decade of experience in portfolio management and risk management. I often look to Connor for his broad economic and financial market expertise and his insights into the big picture of what's happening in all the financial markets. Connor lives in Atlanta, which is one of the hottest real estate markets in the country right now. He writes about Atlanta. So we're going to talk about Atlanta today, too. So welcome, Connor. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Mike. It's, we've been talking to each other for, I think, 15 years was the first email I sent to you. So it's great to finally chat in person for, over, over the internet. Over, that's right. It's really great. Yeah, I think we were when we were just starting Altos Research a long time ago, you were one of the first people on, on Twitter to see what we were doing and respond to it. Yeah, I, well, what's fascinating to me is as somebody who's really loves working with data, that mid 2000s period was when we brought a lot of data and democratized data in the real estate market. And so I think that's, you know, your work has really helped me to bring that data to the public and, and allow practitioners like me access to it. That's, that's awesome. So we get to talk a lot about the data today. But first, tell us about you. Tell us about your background, about, about Peachtree Peach Creek and how you ended up writing for Bloomberg. Sure. So when I first emailed you, that was when I had just moved to San Francisco to start working for a hedge fund. And, you know, I, I saw, I forget, probably on a blog or something that you, Altos was this data organization that had housing data. And I was at this hedge fund really interested in what was going on in the housing market in late 2005. And so, you know, thought that Altos could help me with that. And so my background is in computer science and economics. That's what I studied in college. And I sort of love the intersection of the two of those. And I think housing and data really sit in sort of both worlds. And so I was in San Francisco for about five years from 2005 to 2010, working in risk management. The housing market, of course, was a huge part of that during that period. And then living in the tech world as well, just being in San Francisco, sort of got burned out living there, had a breakup and decided to move to Atlanta, where I had a couple friends and worked for a tech startup here for a little bit, and then eventually went out on my own. I sort of, you know, wanted to flex those hedge fund muscles, but without the, the crazy schedule that working for a big hedge fund entails. And Twitter was a great way to stay engaged in that world as well, being in Atlanta and not in an office with a lot of other similarly minded people. And so, you know, slowly but surely, you grow a following, you talk to people, you learn more. And that Bloomberg kind of came out of that, where I was talking with a lot of journalists and columnists and 
Bloomberg was looking for people to write and somebody pitched my name. And so I started doing that about five years ago. I really like the work you you do with Bloomberg. I like the the insights that you trigger from it. I like the way you you take, you recognize trends that are happening and and that you really present them in a, in a real cogent way. So I, I want to talk to you more about that work. Tell me about Peachtree Creek. Is that, oh, sure. is that um, is it, what kind of, what kind of company is it? Sure. So it's a registered investment advisor and it's, it's just me. I'm a one-man shop and I just manage money for clients. A lot of times friends and family and referrals, individuals. And again, it's just a way for me to stay engaged and you know help people and and manage money, but without the big stress and chaos and infrastructure of a big firm. I see. And and when you do that, are you primarily doing equities or are there other things like like real estate investments or stuff? In, in uh, oh, it's, it's all publicly traded securities. So there's some housing related equities at times, but it's sort of, you know, I'm kind of a tops down person. So it's a lot of different sectors and depending on what interests me at the moment and what I think is interesting. Got it. Oh, that's great. And uh, so you've been doing that for like 10 years now. Yep. That's 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 great. It's it's nice to see that develop as like a as a as a testament to to, to the the quality of analysis that you get to do. And I and I've been remote work from day one. So when the world shut down in March 2020, the biggest change for me was my kids with daycare in school. But in terms of work, it was like okay, I'm already working at home with my dog. So that's not a change. That's not change. And the other the other big change that I've observed is that everybody else is all of a sudden finally good at using Zoom and like right. doing those things. So it's okay to have a a video phone call. Exactly. So okay. So at well, let's start here. The that we call the podcast Top of Mind. What's top of mind for you right now? So right now, you know, your work has been so helpful in terms of explaining what's going on in the housing market from somebody who works with the data and creates the data themselves. And so the inventory situation and sort of the, you know, you've pointed out the, the surge in new listing prices and price increase percentages and things like that, that tells you about demand and, and supply and demand in the housing market. The part that's interesting to me right now is that home builders and a lot of people are saying, well, we expect 10% growth given strong demand, given that they're trying to grow. And I don't think the supply chain can handle that this year. So that, to me, the story of this year might be that everyone's projecting 10% demand based on, you know, 10% growth based on strong demand. And then it could just be because there are so many bottlenecks between appliances and cabinets and garage doors and siding and windows that the market really only grows to maybe three to 5%. And that to me is, especially in a time of rising interest rates, I think there are a lot of headwinds for housing in terms of investors, you know, I think home prices are probably going to grow, maybe even more than people think, just because the supply situation won't be able to won't be able to respond to demand. Interesting. And so, um, when you say so, that, so then the the market has sort of you can see the expectation of maybe ten percent growth for home builders, but you're you figure they're likely to sort of under deliver on that. Right. Something I've been watching is on my street. You know, four, three or four houses down was a, a a lot that a builder bought a year ago to the day, and they tore down an old house and they've been building a new house, which they expect to sell for over a million dollars. And I just watched to see like what's going on with this house, and it's really a great sort of microeconomic way of observing the supply chain in real time. And it took them a while to frame the house, but they eventually did. And then it's what happens is they do one step and then they they stop for two or three weeks, presumably waiting for that next piece of the supply chain to come on board. And it's just been a very, very prolonged process. And they're still waiting for a garage door. I don't see a garage door. I'm sure there are no cabinets inside, no appliances. And I don't know when they're going to sell, the, finish this house. And they haven't actually listed it yet because why list a home that you're not ready to sell? Presumably prices will keep rising. 
And so I wonder, will this home be ready for the spring selling season? When will they eventually list it? What will it sell for? And then I wonder if you can't build a million dollar home in Atlanta, what does that mean for the national housing market for home builders trying to ramp up this year? Yeah. And, and the, it's funny that I, I redid a kitchen in my, my mountain house and, and um, I may have told the story on the podcast before actually, but it's like people look at the kitchen, they say, Hey, that's a really nice kitchen counter. And I say, thanks. That's the one they had in stock. Right. So the, so, you know, and, do you know, like the the local builders, individual builders are are notoriously, they're not uh, necessarily efficient in their scheduling and structure. But the but the big builders are like that's the competency. And it um, could be that to your point, like the big builders, your Dr. Hortons and Lenars, they're going to get the materials that they need, and maybe multifamily as well because multifamily is so strong, and there are more efficiencies there. And so your your one off local builders trying to build you know, infill single family homes just get shut out. And even if it's a really high price point, maybe they just can't get what they need to finish homes. That's even so I think that's, for them. Yeah, to me, the, the, the story of this year is really about what can the supply chain deliver, not what's the demand picture. I think demand is strong. Everybody knows demand is strong. It's, it's can they actually build these homes? The, and does that then change in, so it is like, we have a uh, rising interest rates. We have inflation. We have, you know, it's now beginning of February that the, the uh, stock market's been tanking. Are there are there risks for that home builder? Like, you know, oh, it's now nine more months. It's taken me, you know, twenty months to build this house, and all of a sudden the demand, like, the, things have changed. It's really fascinating because you know they're looking at your data too, probably, and saying inventory is crazy. The market's so hot, we might get ten percent housing growth, uh, home price growth again this year. But if I start a home in April, when am I going to finish it? Will I finish it in April of twenty twenty three? And then where will mortgage rates and, and demand be then? And it is kind of a, you know maybe it's really strong and you kill it, or maybe in the second half of this year or, or first half of next year that demand does diminish. And so I think it's a really challenging situation for the market trying to deliver more homes given supply chains and how long the lag time is rising interest rates and what that means for demand in the future. And it's, it's just a really tricky time. Yeah. So tell, let's talk about interest rates for a second. I am not skilled at interest rates. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I bought you know, my first house in the mid nineties and I, I had an eight something percent interest rate and I, locked it in for 30 years because I thought it was going to go up. And then I bought my second house in 2001 at six something. And I locked it in for 30 years because I thought it was going to go up. <laughs> I bought my third house at four something and I locked it in for 30 years because I thought it was going to go. So um, I'm now locked in at two and I set 2.7. And <laughs> right. But, but so, well, the interesting thing is I think the fed is probably more likely to deliver more hikes this year than people think. So right now the consensus has shifted to four or five rate hikes this year, maybe it's six, but you know, mortgage rates anchor to the 10 year interest rate. And it's possible that that rate doesn't move that much because people say, well, they're going to raise interest rates all this, you know, later this year. Well, eventually that just means they're going to be cutting them two or three years down the road if demand softens. And so maybe the 10 year stays below 2%, even if the Fed funds rate that the Fed controls goes to closer to two. And so for the housing market, I don't know if the 10-year yield is really going to rise that much just because the market seems to think that raising interest rates now just means cutting them later. And so it's, is that really going to cool the housing market if the 10-year yield doesn't rise at all? So it's, again, an interesting situation. So so is that a, is that a dynamic that that is at play where the market is? So there's 
broad consensus, we're going to get Fed rate hikes. But the 10-year, the people that are buying that are that are vested in the 10-year are have already figured that and now are looking way well beyond that. Is that really yeah, is they, that how that ends up playing out? They they actually perversely say, well, if they hike more than we expect this year, it just means they're gonna be cutting sooner and faster later. Therefore, you actually want to own 10-year bonds and push interest rates down at the back end of the curve. Wow. Okay. And okay, so put that pushes interest rates down to the back end of the curve. And and if that gets too out of whack, that's why the bond market would forecast recession because the the bond buyers are saying they're way overdone and we have to we're we're gonna we're gonna be in, in that bond. We're gonna drive the interest rates down on the far end of the curve and you get your and a lot of them are even looking at late 2018 when as we know inventory was rising and the housing market was softening so they say well we couldn't pull it off then so why can we pull it off now so there's just very little concern of long-term interest rates rising because they don't think that the market can handle it oh wow okay and and so then the fed looks at the feds the fed is primarily interested in inflation now they need to hike to slow down inflation, you know, ostensibly need to hike to slow down inflation. Is the Fed, does the Fed care at all about the fact that the housing market is nuts? I think they do because they're saying to the extent that inflation is not just a transitory supply chain thing, they say it's maybe consumers are so, they've got all this money in their pocket from the stimulus payments, from wealth effects of the housing market and the stock market. And so part of that is, you know, do they want to at least put a ceiling on asset prices to make sure? I mean, if, if home prices rise another 10% this year, that's another several trillion dollars in wealth for households, which just goes back into the economy with maybe not refis if interest rates rise, but maybe cash outs, um, people do renovations. And, and so they're sort of in an interesting spot where they might want to, they're trying to raise interest rates to control inflation. But if the long term interest rates don't rise, and if the housing market is so strong due to the supply demand picture, if they can't slow housing then what are these interest rates really going to accomplish in terms of controlling inflation? Right. Yeah. So uh, so then what do they do? Do they hike more? I think that's the question that we're starting to ask, but it's unclear because we haven't even had that first rate hike. And so, but it's, you know, if we're coming in mid-year and your, your metrics, if inventory is lower than it was at this time last year and the housing market's maybe stronger than it was in the middle of 2021, which is insane. But if we can't deliver the homes and if there's no supply, then that could be the case. And so, if you really think that the wealth effect is part of what's driving inflation, how can the Fed, you know, ding the wealth effect to some extent? And that that might be a question they're asking three or four months from now. And, and do you have a sense of why the Fed hasn't hiked yet? Even though it's because yeah, it seems they, like it's around. <laughs> until now, they've they've wanted to not surprise markets, and so because they said we're going to continue asset purchases until March, they felt like this was a schedule that they had to deliver on. But starting in March, just sort of anything goes, and they're telling us that of. You know, we might hike in March, we might not, we might hike 50. We don't want to tell you anything about what we're going to do going forward. And so market participants are, you know, looking at the pricing and what does the market imply. And then they also look at what the Fed's done for the past 20 years, which is, okay, maybe it's once a quarter. So that's sort of the playbook investors are using to try to figure out what the Fed's going to do. Got it. That's really interesting. So I saw what, you had a comment uh, recently about how you could... Or sort of forecast uh, a world where mortgage rates don't really get much above, well, what was the high end of what you were looking at? Four and a half, maybe? Four and a half. Which, yeah. I mean, that would be the 10-year at 2.5, and it's struggled to even get to two. So I, I think that would imply a pretty drastic change versus what people are thinking already. 
Right. So that would mean not not just Fed rate hikes, but Fed hikes the rates and the people who are buying the bonds say, wow, Fed's not hiking enough. We're still going to be stronger. And so then they're going to be selling those bonds. So it would have to be uh, significant growth and inflation, even while the, high, the, the Fed interest rates hikes are happening. And there's sort of this thing where if the 10 year were to really go to two and a half, that probably means the housing market is even stronger than you and I think for the market to sustain interest rates that level. So it's sort of, it really is kind of crazy right now where it's like heads home prices go up a lot, tails they go up even more. And it's, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I, I see that as well with, with, you know, we have inflation and as I think you said on Twitter, you commented about the 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 best inflation hedge is a fixed rate mortgage and a Costco card. And so, so in an inflationary environment, it's good to own. Mm -hmm. And so that generates demand. And then, but, but in a, in a rising interest rate environment, it's also like motivating people to buy sooner. And so it's like, you may. Right. Well, right now, if you can get a mortgage for three and a half percent and you think home prices are going to rise eight to 10% over the next year as an investment, it's kind of a can't lose thing if the home doesn't fall apart and you can maybe rent it out and get any kind of rent at all. And it's like, well, I'm already earning five on the carry between home price growth and my mortgage payment. And then if I get any rental income at all, it's it's a free lunch and in an inflationary environment, it's hard to beat that. It's hard to beat that. And did I'm not sure if, if you, we had on a, a broker, a Path and Post Realty, Brad Nix and Becky Bab Babcock, who are from Atlanta and they're super smart, but they were talking about how they negotiate offers for their clients. And one of the things they pointed out is in a in an environment like this where prices are rising, inflation is rising, and rates are still super low, then it makes it really easy to overbid on the house. If you overbid by 5% or 8%, you're 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 giving up a few months of home price appreciation, but your payment doesn't change that much. Right. And so that really facilitates the the this overbidding environment that we see well and you know because we all want to look back to is this the same as 2006 which where we got in trouble but the underwriting is so much better we're not seeing the same construction levels that we did back then because of the supply chain issues that and also builders are just much more conservative than we were then the demographics are stronger now than they were back then we actually have inflation you know broader inflation than so it's it's hard to see like what's worse now versus then in terms of if you're worried about a, a bubble situation and I don't see it yet. Maybe we get there in a couple of years, but right now I think we're still pretty early in this. That's just kind of scary. That's great. So, uh, and that's a good transition. You know, one of the things I like to ask my guests, like, we're in this, this crazy hot market. Everybody knows it's crazy hot. It seems to be getting hotter. What, what are the risks? If we look out a year, 18 months, what, what risks? We have our supply chain problems, but what, what risks do we have? Are we facing that derail everything? Are there things I'm not seeing? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you again. We 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 we've had the ultimate housing bust. So you you go back to that, and it's you know speculative bidding. There's really not speculation. Sort of the way we think of it historically. You know, we had those teaser mortgage rates. So there was the risk that the mortgage rates would implode, and that that's not a risk here. The underwriting is really strong. There's very little risk of any kind of oversupply situation in the near term. So I guess it's sort of if you're in Boise and you pay 50 percent more than the market price, then you know, maybe you get six or 12 months where home prices correct 10% if price growth is really insane. But if, if you're going to hold a home for three to five years, I don't see that kind of risk right now. And I think that, that, you know, 
hypothetical baby boomer supply is still much later in the decade, at least something on a, on a wide scale. Right. When they finally start selling and retiring and moving into, into assisted living and freeing right. up some of that inventory. I mean, so there's, there will come a, t a point later in this decade where the millennials have largely bought the homes they need, and then the baby boomer supply will come. And that's probably the risk in terms of if you're really worried about some sort of structural issue. But in 2022, we're still pretty early in this. Like the, the median baby, I mean, sorry, median millennials probably in their early 30s right now. So they're just getting started and they probably haven't been able to buy a home. Right. Famously haven't been able to buy a home yet. So, so then let's shift gears a little bit into that the millennial demographic, things like job creation and household formation. How should we think about what's going on there? Well, part of it is that it's easy to look at just what's going on now and say, wow, we've had all, you know, home price growth and rent growth is up in the last 12 months. How can that be possible? And it's, you know, we underbuilt for 10 years and then also household formation was very low for 10 years. And so even though household formation is rising, partially due to just the growth of that demographic surge, we were sort of under householded, which is a, you know, not really a word, but we'll, we'll go with it for a long time because people weren't forming households at the rate that they typically were. And so you have household formation growth plus millennial demographic growth. So you have these sort of two growth drivers that it's, it's been expected for a long time, but it's finally happening. And so it's probably going to take several years for this to play out where household formation growth normalizes and millennials have bought the homes they need to buy. So again, I, I do think three to five years from now, we probably have a different situation, but it's still sort of tough in that you can look at the home price growth and maybe at some point you say it's unsustainable, but if demand ex exceeds supply, prices go up. That's just sort of the way things work. Yeah, it's all right. Let's let's talk about investor activity. We've got big hedge funds buying lots of properties. We got individuals buying lots of properties, and and that's one of the trends that that I've talked about. Try to bring to people's attention with the hedge funds get the headlines, but the bulk of the of the investment home buying is actually with individual investors. What do you, do you see things there? Are you thinking that like that continues to grow? What, what have you, have you given any thought about, about that? I think those factors, like it's probably depends on the metro area. So that, I mean, if you think about an investor, they're all sorry, the big investors are pretty predictable where they're saying, what are the metros with great demographics? Cause we don't want to mess around with suburban Ohio. It's too complex. Like, you want, you want that multi-year tailwind so you can show on your investor slides to your investors, like, you know, national demographics are up and to the right. And so they're, they're crowding in the same probably five or 10 markets, your Raleigh's and Charlotte's and Nashville's and Austin's and Phoenix's and whatnot. And then they're looking at, well, what's the part of the demographic curve we want? And it's that entry level, you know, middle, middle class millennial buyer. So maybe that's 400 to $500,000. And so that's the part of the market that they want. And so I think if you get that you know, middle of the middle of the pack buyer market in these metros, investors all want to be in the same places. And so, if you're looking to buy a home in Phoenix in that three to five hundred thousand dollar range, you're you're competing with your your Blackstones and those types of guys. But if you're buying in Maine, it's probably not an issue. So it really depends on where you are in the country and then where you are in the buyer pool as well. And they're also probably not buying million dollar homes in Phoenix either. Right, that's for sure. The one thing I noticed when I talked to individual level investors is how they've really shift, shifted their focus from the, the Austins or, or Phoenixes to the, the next level of markets, the Memphis and the, mm. the Mobile, Mobile, Alabama, you know, or Jacksonville. Jacksonville's exploding right now. Mm -hmm. the, um, no, I, yeah. 
go ahead. No, I think you're right. It's it's sort of, and it's yeah. I think and since we both lived through 2006, 2008, we're we're asking ourselves like, are we are we the crazy people this time around? But it's just it's not clear to me yet like where the the downturn is going to come from. Maybe we're just too scarred from the last cycle. Yeah, or you know, it's it's funny. I, I was talking with somebody. I think it was. Uh, I think it's on a forthcoming podcast. Maybe I'm scooping myself here, but the the interesting comment was, you know, we're 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 so conditioned to resist the the phrase. It's different this time, right? It feels different this time. We're so conditioned to rephrase it that to to resist that that thinking. The that maybe the right thinking is it's actually different last time. Like last right. time was the diff was the anomaly. Yeah. Um, well, so I think looking thinking about the sort of the labor market story this year, my guess is we're going to add maybe 3 million jobs and then wage growth is going to be maybe five to 6%. And so that kind of papers over a lot of sins if you make a bad investment purchase, just because job growth means home price growth and housing growth. And so it's not like I, and the job growth we're getting isn't really that tied to the housing market, which again was how last cycle was so different where you had all these mortgage and home construction related job growth and outside of that maybe in a market especially like san bernardino there really wasn't much going on we don't really have that this summer yeah so then so three million jobs this year and that that is in a in a world where we're trying to pull the steam out of the the economy and yeah, it so, lags. yeah yeah i think there's so much momentum for the economy this year that the fed is going to hike and we've seen that it's spooking markets but i think next year if we're going to worry about the fed hurting the economy and markets i think next year is the the bigger concern when at that point, maybe supply chain things do start to normalize and the people who left their jobs during COVID have all come back and gotten a job and there's less sort of momentum in the economy. Whereas right now there's just so much momentum and the only thing holding it back is really the supply side. The supply side. And, and in that sense, do you think of inflation and we put a bunch of money in the economy, but, but it's also could be supply side inflation. How do you view inflation and where it's coming? Well, I think housing is a great way to think about inflation right now, where if people think we're going to grow homes by home creation by 10% this year, and we only grow it by five, well, whereas maybe we would have only gotten 8% home price growth if we actually got that 10% growth in deliveries. But since we didn't, that extra demand just shows up in higher prices rather than more units. And that's probably a way to think about inflation more broadly right now, where if we had the supply, we wouldn't get the inflation. We just get the volume growth, but that demand shows up. One, it either shows up in volume or pricing. And it's showing up in price right now. Yeah, and there's really no no sign of that of the supply easing yet. Not yet, and it's I builders are all saying we're growing community count, but I joke about it with some other housing people. It's like, okay, you built the road into the development, but you can't get the appliances or the trusses you need to actually finish the home. So. I appreciate they're growing communities and you're eventually we will get those units, but it's just not clear when we'll get them. Yeah. And the, 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 the supply constriction across everything in the economy. So it's not even, it's not just the, the housing part. And I have, I have a friend who runs a, a manufacturing robotics company and, you know, they, they like tripled their bookings this year, but halved their deliveries because mm -hmm. they just can't, can't get, and you know, the, the, Demand is off the charts, but the deliveries are are you know, extended from you know a, a three week window to a nine month window. Or I think yeah, one interesting thought here is how the supply chain bottlenecks all are interrelated. Where it's like if I if a retailer is struggling to fill to, to stock its shelves, then it has to get more units on a boat, 
from China. And if that those boats are all full with retail units, and that means you can't put windows or housing-related goods on them. So to some extent, the housing supply chain is being impacted by other supply chains. And so if those were to get unclogged, then maybe the delivery times would get reduced and housing could get fixed to some extent. Yeah. So then does does this all so so we've got the the booming economy, but we have this constriction and 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 in your view, which I buy, I totally buy, it, it constricts the the growth in, in the housing market, especially in the new construction. Does it constrict the growth in everything? I think so. And it's it's even constricting labor where maybe if you see it with the automakers where they would love to run their plants 24-7 right now, but they don't have the semiconductors. And so that means that some workers are being furloughed while they wait for semiconductors to come online. So as that supply comes, that actually leads to more workers and more you know incomes, which then feeds into more demand as well. So there's just all these things pushing for more growth in the economy right now on the volume side, on the income side, on the on the pricing side. And it's again, this is unprecedented in my career. And it's, you know, the question is when does that slow down? And Will it happen organically? Does the Fed need to do it? What would, the, what would that mean either way? And, but I, I think those are questions for a later date, whereas right now we're just trying to manage this wall of demand. Yeah. And so, you know, for 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 our audience, you know, thinking about working with people who are who are buying homes right now or selling homes right now, the trends are obvious. They're big and they sure don't look like they're derailing this year. No, and the, the hard thing is when you see things like Ali Wolf saying the cabinets are nine months delayed in, in her checks, it's like, well, should I just wait a year to get cabinets? And it's like, well, if you get them a year from now, they'll, they'll probably be 10% more expensive. So you're not really better off waiting. It's just, if, if you said to somebody like, what should I do? It's like, I don't have a great answer for you. It's if you wait, you're going to pay more and you won't get it for a year. And if you buy now, you're trying to compete with everybody else. So it's yeah. just a bad situation. It's, it's, it's really wild that way. So let's, so let's look backwards a little bit. Highlights from 2021, what surprised you, you know, or what was notable there that we should pay attention to? Well, I mean, I remember back in the spring 2020, which is when I really started following your weekly videos and it was seeing housing come back soon. Didn't surprise me. Like I, in March, 2020, I had a couple of friends saying, should I not buy a house? I said, no, like inventory is low and demographics are what they are. I would just, you need this house for your family. I would just buy it. But then seeing it come back, it was like, okay, I, I buy the bottom. But then when it took off that summer, I think that was really surprising. And there was some thought, well, maybe this is pull forward demand. People were going to buy a house next spring. Now they're doing it. And we were waiting to see that demand slump. And I think the spring of 2021 is, okay, we're going to back off because last year was crazy. And then it didn't. And so I think that was surprising that the peak was really more like the middle to the latter part of last year. And then when supply inventory started growing in the back half of the year, it's like, okay, we're starting to, we're going to get normal to some extent. But then it was probably October where, you know, inventory was, was pulling back again. And it was, you know, I were talking and it was like, okay, well, this is happening a lot sooner than you would think. And it's like the spring buyer season started in, in November. And so it's, I think last year was sort of just surprising at how the demand didn't back off. We didn't really get that normalization. And if anything, it's, you know, arguably this spring can be stronger than last spring, which is just completely mind-blowing completely mind-blowing yeah I, I was hoping that that the fall was getting a little more back to seasonal normalcy and but then all of a sudden it just it feels like it's not right and i think this is a new definition of is this a healthy housing market i would say no it's a very strong housing market it's a very frustrating housing market and it's, but it's certainly not healthy i don't think on anyone's sense yeah and it's i, I sometimes think of it in uh you know we have the uh 
the 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 curse of fighting the last war yeah right and the last war is the crisis is overpriced homes with artificial demand that cratered and we're all looking and fighting that war when our real crisis is a supply crisis it's a like the the end of a, a price crisis for first time home buyers like it's an entirely different war that we're we're actually facing but we're all still fighting the last war and something that's been interesting to me is watching the home builders and listening to these conference calls to hearing the executives talk about their thought process because you know if you're just following this market you would think why aren't they just flooding the market with homes as quickly as they possibly can but they're driven by shareholders and what shareholders want because they were so burned in the last cycle they don't want excess leverage they don't want all that debt they want steady predictable growth at high profit margins and that's what builders have been able to do they say we grew 10 percent in volume pricing went up our margins went up we're buying back shares and we're going to try to grow 10 percent again and they just want to have this steady growth turn capital shareholders and part of that's growing volume but that's not really the goal the goal is shareholder returns and so they're not really incentivized to fix the market they're just operating on their own incentives interesting okay so the shareholders are fighting the last war yes and and therefore and you know as a home builder you're like well that's that's who i got to answer to yeah you say like i grew book value 10 percent. we bought back stock you know we're growing community count our margins are at all-time highs what's not to like and they're frustrated yeah. by supply chain stuff but if if a worse supply chain just means you raise prices and you make it up on margins you're kind of okay that's really fascinating that's you know that there are a couple of comments that that come to mind in there one you know the, it's really fun in the altos data over the years the 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 fun opportunities are when we get to be contrarian and bullish right so when when the market is really thinks that housing is is tanking and we say it's not you know last year in 2020 we had five weeks of that <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh and then the market was turned around. We had actually a couple months of where we got to before the, the market caught up with the data, you know, a couple months of in five weeks of down market. And then, and then we had recovery. And so that was a fun, that was a really fun opportunity to be there. We had it in, in 2011 when the first time home buyer tax credit of 2009 mm -hmm. went through April 1 of 2010. And it very much pulled demand forward from end of 2010 into the first. And so by the end of 2010, uh, the, the, the market slow, the housing market slowed way back down again. Uh, but in January, February, March of 2011, we could see organic levels of demand picking up. We could see prices rising with no incentives in place. Mm. Um, but the headlines were still, Armageddon from because they were based on the fourth quarter. And so right. those moments were really there. And then and then some of the lagging indicators like the case Schiller didn't really recognize the home price turnaround until a year later in 2012. And so like those are opportunities when it gets to be what's really fun with the Altos data. I'm afraid for the next time when we're contrarian, we're going to start being down first before everybody else and i don't know what to do then <laughs> yeah well i i think about last year when everyone was predicting okay when these foreclosure moratoriums expire a, a wall of supply is going to hit the market and crush pricing and we would watch it every week and it never happened because everyone had made a lot of money in their home they could sell their house if they wanted to they could restructure their mortgage and that just didn't happen that supply didn't come and so the last year was maybe 
the supply surprise was from the foreclosure supply not being there. And this year it's gonna be on the builders not being able to deliver. And so the contrarian but bullish is, well, home price growth is gonna surge because builders can't actually deliver homes this year. Interesting. And and that's not yet priced into the builder stocks? Like it's like- Well, the interesting thing, if I, as a public market investor, and I think about, you know, because if, if you're a specific housing investor, you would say pricing is going to be off the charts this year. Margins are going to be strong. There's infinite demand. Mortgage rates aren't going to go up that much. Why wouldn't I want to own home builder stocks when they're so cheap? But if you're a, a kind of a generalist investor, you'd say, well, wait a minute. You're just telling me that they're not going to be able to meet their projections for demand this year. And then the Fed's hiking interest rates. Why do I want to own housing stocks? And I think that's why they've actually been pretty weak this year because um, people are saying rising rate environment, they can't meet what they're telling us they're going to do. And so I don't want to own the stocks yet. But I think later this year, once that's priced in, they could be great investments. Okay, that's good. Well, I've proven over and over again that I am not a stock trader. So I will just uh, you know listen to the, the voice of the experts on how that, that, <laughs> that might come to pass. Okay, let's talk. We've talked a little bit about the future. Let's talk a, let's talk a little bit more. Let's talk about, so we, we, can, we have some visibility on 2022. Sure looks strong. Sure looks hard to derail. There may be, like some of the trends we were talking about are three to five years. We have the millennial demographic trends. It's probably that long before we see any volume of, of boomer inventory come in. What are other big macro trends over the next several years that we should be paying attention to that aren't, haven't yet shown up in, in the Altos data each week? Well, I think when it comes to housing specific, specifically, the part of the market that's going to peak first is entry level because like I'm 40. And so, you know, we lived in a smaller home, then we had a couple of kids. Now we live in a bigger home. And so I think about whatever I want is like five years ahead of the market because I'm just older than most millennials. And so right now they all need that starter home and that three to $500,000 price point. And eventually they're all going to have their starter home and then they're going to want their trade up home in five to seven years. But that means they're going to be selling their starter home when they do that. And so if you're looking to kind of like ride the millennial wave for a long time, I would focus more on the trade-up market than the entry-level market because the entry-level market is crowded and that's going to peak first. Interesting. Yes. So the entry-level peaks first. And I wonder if that has geographic implications. What does that, does that, what does that mean for Atlanta, for example? Right. So it's, you know, if, if you wanted to own as an investment, I mean, right now you're probably okay, but it's, I wouldn't be buying entry-level homes in these hot markets in two to three years. I think at that point, they might be fully priced, and then you start to need to shift to the next part of the market, which is, you know, I, it's not going to be McMansions per se, but it'll be whatever the millennial equivalent of that is. What is a 40-year-old a college-educated millennial going to want in 2030? That should be where the focus should be in a few years. In a few years. That's great. That's good thinking. I, it was part of my rationale for buying my, my mountain house, right? It's like 20 years, like those millennials are going to be wanting to have their mountain house. <laughs> and, and I'm seeing it and my friends, like, I don't know how old you were in 2008, but you probably were like, oh, I you know, blew up, no money. I'm never going to afford all this stuff. And then you get a little older, you're like, I do have some money. And so I think 40-year-old millennials are going to have a lot of money because they didn't live through that housing bust the way that your generation did. And they're going to want really nice stuff. And you know, you know, catering to that will be more important than just here's a unit in Phoenix because you need to own a home. It's going to be, I want something nice. Yeah. And, and so in, I'm Gen X. I'm straight Gen X. And so I was 38 in 2008. And what I what what that illustrate, one of the things that illustrates to me, and I think maybe underappreciated about that housing bust is 2008, 
the Gen X is we're in our late thirties. That's peak home buying years, but there are fewer of us than either side. And so one of the things that happened was that like, there are fewer Gen X going through there and, you know, and all of a sudden demand can shrink because there are less of us. It's right. sort of like the demographics drive everything argument. Well, so yeah, this is a great point because in 2010 you were 40, right? And that was probably like the most broke a 40 year old crop of Americans has ever been since the <laughs> Great Depression and your generation was small. So we went through the 2010s and outside of like the Bay Area, there just weren't a lot of wealthy 40 somethings because they all got their home equity wiped out. Maybe they didn't buy a house and they were just trying to get a job and, and rebuild their savings. Whereas I'm 40 now, we see the aggregate household wealth numbers in the US. We're going to have a bigger generation of 40 somethings because millennials are bigger and they're going to be a wealthier generation of 40 somethings. So that, that to me is a decade long theme of affluent 40 somethings and all the stuff that they're going to want between housing and cars and vacations and everything else. Yeah, that drives a ton. Excellent, excellent, excellent thinking. Are there things that that you're thinking about, themes, macro themes that that whether or not they impact housing or not that that we aren't hearing yet about in the the media, the conventional wisdom? I think just we we think about remote work in terms of we're on Zoom, we're not in an office and it's it's very kind of first order thinking about remote work, but it's to the extent that that becomes the future, what's that whole like sort of supply chain, supply chain is the wrong word. You know, what, how do you change the economy to serve the needs of, you know, college educated information remote workers? And it's not just a Zoom and a camera in your room. It's like maybe more built out, you know, we work type things close to their homes. Maybe it's coffee shops, restaurants they're actually gonna go to during the day. So there's gonna be this whole ecosystem of, of businesses that gets created to meet these needs. And right now we've kind of dabbled, we've done a few things here and there, but assuming we get to a post-COVID normal, I think, you know, I don't know if you work from home or have in the past, but it's sort of, there'll be a whole ecosystem created to meet those people. And I think that'll be an interesting thing to see. And, you know, this is a great opportunity to tell the, the people who are listening, they maybe have heard me use the phrase Zoom towns. And Connor is the one who coined the the label Zoom towns for all these like booming housing economies of the last couple of years. So, so let, so Zoom towns in your view are here to stay or at least the, like, tell me, tell us more about that. It sounds, that sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, I think they, they are here to stay. It's sort of, you don't want to be too specific about what they're going to look like in the future because it's easy just to say, okay, it's a bunch of tech workers going to Tahoe. That's, that's certainly part of it, but it's, I think about as a parent, it's like, okay, what can I do differently for my lifestyle with my children now that I don't have to be in an office to work. And so, you, you know, while I take a, a spring vacation, instead of going just to Disney World, I'll go to a place where kids can do stuff during the day, but I'm going to work, maybe take meetings. And you, you turn vacation towns into sort of, you create more business amenities there, you know, so it's, it's sort of a blending of leisure towns and, and work towns. So it's not just Midtown Manhattan and the Hamptons, which are two separate things. You sort of create a blending sort of in the same way that tech versus uh, retail, like e-commerce versus retail, it's sort of omni-channel and they're all kind of intermingled now. We're going to see things like that in real estate, I think, where Tahoe might have a WeWork or maybe because there are going to be a lot of you know people working nine to fives in Tahoe doing stuff and they won't be in an office maybe, but they'll be doing meetings and events and things like that. That's great. That's a really interesting commercial opportunity. Right. Uh, are there the the 
we work related things in normally uh remote vacation places like we've got reliable fast internet we've got you can you can have your subscription to come work here it's like you know i have a gym membership at the what you know for when i'm in in the mountains too but but having a having a having a like a reliable office space that's really interesting opportunity yeah kind of like what does a mixed use development look like in a vacation town when 30% of the residents are there working yeah yeah, super, super neat. And you don't think that that like that's that's a permanent change. That's we're not like about to get back into really mostly back in the office. Yeah, well, I think you think about like over a five or ten year period, what's more likely to become a better experience, the remote work experience or the office experience? And I think both are going to have to compete to some extent where offices are going to have to become more compelling to draw people in when it's not just here's your cubicle. So it's, you know, better amenities, more events, more, a more fun office environment than in the past. And then also vacation towns are going to have to compete to win these workers who can work anywhere. And so we're going to have to see what the winning models are. I think there'll be multiple models, but it's sort of, we've, we've, offices used to, didn't have any competition. Now there's lots of competition. Yeah. I have a hypothesis that a really compelling office environment is actually going to be a, 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 a recruiting advantage over a fully remote place like like if your office is so lame that nobody ever wants to go in there like that's a problem <laughs> like right you you want to you, you want to be you want to be a place where like i love going in and working with my people and it's creative and you know and and, and the communication is rich and, and as opposed to never going back in there. <laughs> right it's like you just built this you know all it has is like a rinky dinky like deli in the front that's it like that's not going to draw people back certainly that's not it. the workers that you want to come back exactly uh exactly that's really neat um, i love those concepts on zoom towns i love the evolving the evolving concept of what really a zoom town is and, th and there's a lot to be had to like that i hadn't hadn't thought about some of those opportunities anything else that, that people haven't picked up on yet i think we've covered a lot of things you know it's a really fascinating time because right now it's sort of I think three to five years from now, it's all gonna be very obvious. Whereas right now you're just sort of throwing out ideas and maybe 30% to 50% work and you're not really sure which ones yet. But I, I do think that we're not going back to any kind of pre-COVID normal of 80% of the time spent in the office. If anything, I think companies are gonna have to end up being rem remote first because otherwise it's like, like I've got friends who've gone back to the office and they're doing Zoom calls from their desk. It's like, well, why, why even bother going in if you're just on Zoom? So it's even companies who are going back to the office find themselves working remotely from the office. And that's a, just a bad experience. So we're, you know, I think anyone hoping for just normal to come back, it's, that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, that is just uh, terrific. Let's, uh, let's sort of bring it, uh, wrap, wrap it up. Let's make sure, where can people follow your work? So I write for Bloomberg Opinion. I try to write twice a week. Sometimes it's more like once a week. Uh, so you can just Google and find me there. And then on Twitter, Connor Sen is my handle. And I, I tweet way too much, but I try to, keep it the topics that I feel like I have something interesting to say about. Yeah, that's great. I I really appreciate why you both your Twitter feed, but also that the Bloomberg opinion columns, I read them like every week. I, I really appreciate the insights. I loved your, your take on the Bucky's gas station chain and, and like sh share real quick with what you, what your observation was there. Yeah. So Bucky's for those who don't know is this Texas based chain of mega gas stations with like a hundred pumps. And then it has an attached retail store 
that's like a hundred thousand square feet. It's it's your classic like only you know had to come from Texas type thing, and so it's really an, an experience to go through it. And it, you know, unlike a gas station, you're probably spending the twenty or thirty minutes there because they've got barbecue inside and and all kinds of stuff like that. And so in a world where we have more electric vehicles and larger charge times, you know, when you're stopping to charge for twenty or thirty minutes, you just don't want this highway gas station where there's you know some warmed over hot dogs and combos or something like that. You're going to want a different kind of experience to, to kill 20 or 30 minutes. And so I think a Bucky's type model might be the winner in an electric vehicle highway charging world. Fascinating. Yeah, I love that. I love that insight. That's super, super great. Okay. That's all the time we're going to take today, folks. My guest has been Connor Sen. He writes for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Opinion. You can find him there at Bloomberg and also on Twitter at Connor Sen. Um, Connor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your take. I appreciate your context. And it's really the reason that we're doing this, this podcast. So it's not just the data. It's like all of the implications around the data. So thanks for your time today. This is the Top of Mind podcast. You can find the Top of Mind podcast where all the podcasts are. You can also find us on YouTube. We do the videos on our YouTube, our Altos Research YouTube channel or altosresearch.com to find all the context. We also share like the, the transcript and the, the real, the great takeaways from each of our interviews on the Altos blog. So go to altosresearch.com to get all of those good things and more soon. Thanks everybody. Thanks Mike. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.